Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to the historian Linda Colley about the history of written constitutions, not just why they matter, but why they created our world. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. I recorded this conversation with Linda Colley last week. It's part of the Cambridge Literary Festival. Uh, we did it live in front of an audience, but unfortunately not a live audience. It was on Zoom. And we're talking about Linda Colley's new book, which is called The Gun, the Ship and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World. Jill Lepore, who's appeared on Talking Politics a few times, wrote about it in The New Yorker. And she describes this book, I quote, as incandescent, paradigm shifting. And she said if there was a Nobel Prize for history, Linda Colley would be her nominee. It's a book that covers a lot and we cover quite a lot of ground in this conversation and we travel all around the world. But I started, as perhaps I start too often, with a question about Thomas Hobbes. Linda, I'm going to start, as I read it, I found myself thinking about a a book that was written 100 years before you start. So you start roughly in the middle of the 18th century. And I found myself thinking about a line from a book written in the middle of the 17th century, Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, in which he says one of the famous lines in that book in which he says, covenants without the sword are but words, essentially meaning that treaties, contracts, constitutions need the sword. They need military force. They need might behind them, or they're just empty words. And your book is really the opposite story in lots of ways, or at least it's, it turns out on its head. And it's, it's about how not words need the sword, but the sword needs words. War, conquest, produces this extraordinary demand for writing down what politics is and trying to make sense of it. So if we come to warfare in a bit, but if we start with words, and this is a big question to start with, but it's really at the heart of what you're writing about. As you wrote this book, how did you come to understand the power of the written word? Why, during this period in the 18th, 19th centuries, does the written word become so important and so powerful for making sense of politics and political conflict? Yeah, I mean, as you know, engraved and written statements of rules of government go back a long way in some societies. What is changing in the mid 18th century and onwards increasingly is, well, partly of course, literacy is on the increase in many societies. There's not much incentive in circulating constitutions and political texts of this sort if you can't have some wider audience. Printing presses are becoming more widely established because a lot of these texts they're not just circulating in the country they emerge from or the empire they emerge from they're crossing boundaries they're acting as manifestos it's one of one of their attractions to rulers particularly new rulers if you're setting up a new state 
like the United States in 1787, the year of the Philadelphia Convention. You want the political world insofar as it exists to know about how your polity is organized, why it is now among the powers of the globe. But of course, there's also feeding into this what we call the Enlightenment, which sees a new emphasis on systematizing government and also a new cult of the legislator. One aspect of that which I like is that you get some people like Lord Bolingbroke arguing in his deistical fashion that Moses didn't get the Ten Commandments from God. No, Moses was the legislator. He used God to advance his own creative laws for humankind. And this cult of the legislator, which you can see in art and architecture and print and whatever, is again, I think, feeding into this idea that iconic political texts can be useful in new and divergent ways. And you mentioned that so part of this is a technological story because this is about printing. And in a way, I don't know if this is the right way to put it. It's almost the democratization of printing. I mean, printing suddenly becomes this vehicle because it matters a lot who controls the presses, who owns them and who's able to get access to them. But there's a real dynamism around the printed word in this period. And, and as you say, this is about circulation. It has to move and it does move through the printing press. Yeah, and the interconnection with the printing press brings advantages to some peoples and political projects and causes further disadvantages to other peoples, other peoples who don't have a written language, for example. How are they going to compete in this new age of political technology? Mm. Well, you can get over that. I mean, one of the things, as I try to explain in the book, that accompanies the growth of missionary activism in different sectors of the globe, missionaries often set up printing presses to issue their own religious texts. But once you've got a printing press in situ, in Pacific Islands, in Asia, whatever, then it can be used for different purposes, including exploratory political constitutions, which is, which is what happens. So as I said at the beginning, this is also a story about war and conflict and the relationship between the two. So it's not simply the Hobbesian idea that you have to back everything up by might, but in an age of, and you call it hybrid warfare, complicated global contests, ongoing contests and great movements as well. So this circulation of ideas goes along with circulations of people. So a lot of the fascinating characters you have in this book, some well-known, some less well-known, many of them are soldiers, or at least they're part-time soldiers and many other things too. And they move around the globe. It's, it's extraordinary with some of them, how, how far they get and, and how many different places they see. So these constitutions, this attempt to write down how politics should be for a country, principles, ideas, it goes with war how? How do you understand that relationship? Well, of course, obviously, there have always been wars 
But by the mid 18th century, there's a more pronounced shift in the nature of warfare. Really big transcontinental wars become more common, Seven Years' War, the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars and so forth. They have more impact, they shape things up more, but they also pose enormous strains for the powers that involve themselves in these conflicts, even the greatest, because if you're going to fight hybrid warfare, as I call it, by which I mean land armies and navies in tandem, that's awfully expensive. I mean, you know, if need be, you could get an army together by letting people out of the prisons or driving the poor into uniform and so forth. But fighting navies, you can't do that. You need very expensive wooden and subsequently metal machines to make an effective fighting navy. They're hideously expensive to construct to maintain, to victual, to man, and so forth. And states have to work out how are they going to afford this? How are they going to afford these big military and naval exercises? How are they going to get the necessary number of men? They have to raise more men for the gun and the ship, but they also therefore have to raise taxes. And one of the ways in which shifts in warfare feed into constitutions, and this was recognized by various political thinkers at the time, is that constitutions can function as a kind of contract. You say to your population, specifically your male population, you are now liable for military service in the event of conflict taxes will be higher in return. Here are greater voting rights or here are greater rights of a different kind, more religious toleration, more acceptance of different ethnic groupings, different religious groupings, whatever. And you can see that happening again and again, and, and not just in Euro-America. I mean, Japan's first constitution in 1889 which really makes taxes zoom up thereafter. It isn't very democratic, but it's more democratic than what came before. And it insists that all Japanese males of a certain age must make themselves available for military service. That's part of the package. And by that stage, this, this is the norm. So that's one way in which war is propelling this new political technology, as I call it. And that connects with a, another kind of history that there are celebrated economic histories of the modern world, which identify constitutions and the constitutional moment with what's sometimes called making credible commitments. So it's, it's about debt as well. It's about persuading creditors that you'll pay them back. And the price of that, of course, in a constitutional sense, is limiting power to prove to people that you're good for the money that you borrowed, you have to limit your power to renege on those debts. And that is a part of this story, isn't it? War generates demands for taxes, but also huge borrowings. And constitutions are often the price of that. Yes, I mean, this happens in France after 1789. I mean, obviously the French 
royal regime collapses very largely because of these huge war debts. It's accumulated in the Seven Years' War and the American Revolutionary War. And so the impetus to rein in the monarchy, even before you guillotine him, is very great and intensified by war. But also, I think, and Tom Paine is a wonderful example of this, this desire to reign in the monarch or the ruler, it's not just coming from the financiers and the parliaments or the aristocracy. To a degree, it's being voiced from below. One of Tom Paine's most recurrent arguments is that European monarchs are congenital warmongers, and it's the people who pay the price. And that that's why he thinks, first of all, that charters are terribly important. He's very big on charters. And for him, the cult of charters morphs relentlessly into a commitment to a written constitution. And he's very clear that if the constitution is not written, it has no real existence. You must put it down in words on paper. And as you said, to so your story, it touches base with the most familiar parts of the political history of this period, the American Constitution, the French Revolution, and so on. But it's a global history. And for people who haven't read the book, who I hope are going to read the book, it goes from Pitcairn to Hawaii, to Corsica, to Mexico, to Japan, as you said, Asia, Africa, South America, variants on this theme. These are often global wars or close to being global wars, some of them, and the people interact almost on a global scale. You start in Corsica, and Corsica is interesting for two reasons. First of all, because it's an unusual place to start. And secondly, because Corsica did produce a very important person in this story, Napoleon. So tell us a bit about Corsica, why Corsica matters for your story. Well, small places and, and indeed small islands recur through my story. And I think that's partly because smallness, of course, we tend to assume, oh, that means insignificance. But smallness can also make for experiment, which would be much harder in a huge, well-established polity. And I wanted to start in Corsica because you have this soldier hero, Pascal Pauli, determined to free Corsica from Genoan hegemony. And he establishes himself as rebel leader in 1755. And one of the amazing things he does is draft a written constitution based on his earlier plans. And his manuscript hasn't survived because Corsica is so underdeveloped in the 1750s. There's no printing engines. He can't even get any new paper. So in order to write his constitutions, he has to scrape ink words off old letters and write his draft constitution on this, which is partly why we don't have the original version. But it's, it's a very interesting constitution, which makes this link explicit between male commitments to fighting to defend the country and political rights, again, only for men. 
And as a result of Paulet's initiative, you do get very briefly in Corsica before the French move in and occupy it, the most democratic society, at least in theory, in the 18th century world being created. So that's one of my island sites. Pitcairn, which you mentioned, is another of them, different part of the world, the South Pacific, tiny place where HMS bounties, mutineers finally end up. And in 1838, the Pitcairners acquire a constitution, a written constitution, which is the first in the world to give women voting rights for the executive on the same terms as men. And again, these are stray, tiny places, but really important in the story. It's not just a story about democracy, is it? Because there's a, there's a sort of almost parallel story over this period, which is the birth of modern democracy. And some of these constitutions and the two you've just mentioned are radically democratic, but they aren't all radically democratic. When I was reading your book, I thought that the theme was inclusivity. The demand seemed to be to be counted as a citizen, to be included in some sense, and particularly across religious divides or ethnic divides. Sometimes that came with democratic rights, sort of participatory rights, but sometimes it didn't. So how do you understand that, particularly through the 19th century, the relationship between the desire that people have for a written constitution establishing the rules of the game and the growth of democracy? Well, one of the things I wanted to establish was that historically and in practice, these instruments could do very different things and to turn them into a teleology of the ever widening reach of democracy and so forth misses a lot of what they did in practice. Constitutions, for example, often are used to determine or to claim geographical boundaries by emerging states. This is constantly happening in South America. And very often people sort of see all these constitutions, one after another, in the same state, in places like Argentina in the 19th century, and sometimes say, well, clearly those constitutions weren't very important because, you know, they didn't last very long. But it depends what you think they're there to do. If these different constitutions are about constantly changing territorial boundaries or making new claims or extending rights to new people or not, then a plurality of constitutions does not mean they're ineffective. It means they're doing rather different things. But yes, constitutions can also be used to withdraw rights or deliberately to exclude from rights. And the state constitutions in the United States, like constitutions in 19th century Australia, you can see them becoming more strong on white male democracy, yes, but explicitly at the same time being about exclusion, saying, no, that land does not belong to Mexicans, it belongs to us. No, Native Americans, they're not going to pay taxes, but therefore, of course, they don't have political rights, which means that we can take their land and 
they have no redress. Obviously, women will not have political rights. And, and sometimes it said, well, this didn't really matter because, after all, women hadn't had political rights very much earlier. But once you have something put down in a mass-produced text, in words, in print, it becomes harder to change. And the constituencies that these instruments are being used to exclude and marginalize, this is as much a part of the story as the spread of democracy, if you'd like. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And so for that reason, it's also a story about empire. And this is a great age of imperial expansion. So to go back to that other Corsican, Napoleon Bonaparte. So you, you have a section about Napoleon, a deeply ambivalent figure in this story, both a spreader of constitutions an establisher of constitutional rules and norms, and also, in his way, a tyrant. Yeah. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. No, no. And, you know, I don't think it's an accident that he comes from Corsica, that he knows about Paoli, who he was very desperate to impress when he was a young man on the make. He certainly knows about Paoli's 1755 constitution. And when Napoleon comes to power in France in the late 1790s, and even before that, when he's a general on the march, moving through the Italian peninsula, his instinct is to legitimize his conquests, sew them up, ensure his supply of tax, ensure supplies of men for his armies by issuing constitutions. And sometimes these constitutions are liberal in the sense they say tolerance for Jews, widening the franchise, getting rid of noble privileges, things that Napoleon is quite serious about at a certain level, but they are also instruments of rule and his internal continental European empire. But they're very important because once a written constitution is introduced into a place, the memory of it is more likely to stick. And even though Napoleon was overthrown at Waterloo famously in 1815, many rulers coming back to their polities after he'd been thrown out found that people had got hooked on this idea of a written constitution and perhaps they were glad to get rid of Napoleon, but they, they wanted some kind of new document under this change of regime. Do you think you could say for that reason that this is partly a story about unintended consequences, that often you can 
give an account of why at a particular time in a particular place, both the powerful and the powerless come together to agree on a form of words, which seems to be of mutual benefit, but often actually isn't. But in the medium longer run, these constitutions have a life which goes against sometimes those original intentions, or at least surprises the people who were responsible for them, that, that throughout your story, even when they fail, these constitutions, and many of them fail, I mean, just collapse, they have a legacy which makes sense in a completely different way. And this is before they then travel, you know, as it were, the Japanese constitution inspired people in India or the Mexican constitution inspires people in other parts of the world. It's a story of unintended consequences. Yes. And it's also a story of legends and memories, true and false memories. I mean, the Tunisian constitution of 1861, the first modern type constitution to emerge in a Muslim polity, only lasts till 1864. But it remains in the Tunisian bloodstream, if you like. And as anti-French colonialism starts developing in Tunisia, stories begin to be told that it was the French who put down this 1861 constitution, which isn't true, but it became a, an important legitimating story. And it still has some power now because in the Arab Spring, these stories about Tunisia's particularly long tradition of written constitutions get rehashed again. So how these texts are remembered and misremembered, again, can be part of the story. And do you think we have got this story wrong by making the American constitution more central than it should be in the history of modern constitutionalism? Are you trying to point us away from that document, which most people will be relatively familiar with? Do you think it's it's sort of colonised too much attention? Yeah, well, you can imagine that working at an American university, which is my situation, I was slightly conscious about this and slightly nervous about what some of my wonderful Americanist colleagues would say. But they were very big about it. I wouldn't in any way want to marginalise the American Constitution. It has... It certainly has a disproportionate impact, not just because of its content, but also, and perhaps as, almost as much, because the newspaper press is so well developed in the new United States in 1787, that you get hundreds of printed versions of this constitution very quickly, this draft constitution, which then get transported to other parts of the world. So it's totally unlike the Corsican constitution of 1755, less radical, but it is mass produced in a way that was completely impossible in Corsica in 1755. But what I wanted to show in the book was that as more and more of these constitutions get created and issued and put into print and translated, moving about the world, often published in omnibus collections, when new powers came to draft constitutions, they didn't just look at one example. And this idea that the United States Constitution had been the guiding beacon throughout 
No, it wasn't like that. Leaders of new states or old states wanting to refresh themselves would look at multiple constitutions and they would often quite explicitly sort of pick a mix, you know, oh, well, we rather like that thing from the Cadiz Constitution of 1812 from Spain, and that thing about age limits in the American Constitution, yes, we'll have that bit. And what about that toleration clause for so on and so forth? And I mean, they do that, for example, in Norway in 1814, when they're desperate to write a constitution really quickly because they're at risk of being invaded by a Swedish army, as they duly are. And they want to put a constitution together very, very quickly. And you can see it's a kind of hodgepodge of indigenous Norwegian notions and political rubrics with bits taken from a wide spectrum of constitutions. And that's how constitutions have been ever since. If you look at the great and huge Indian constitution put together in the late 1940s, the same thing applies. Bits and bobs are taken from different parts of the world. So in a way, the, the age of hybrid warfare produces these hybrid constitutions. They're not, as it's sometimes assumed, I think wrongly, of the American constitution. They're not these pure, rational, coherent documents. As you say, they're a hodgepodge. And We'll get on to the 20th century in a second, and then we'll get to the 21st century. But you end up your core story with the Japanese constitution of 1889. And it's an odd document in many ways, and it's very hybrid. It's quite hard to say exactly what kind of constitution it is, but it's enormously influential. And as I said, it's influential across Asia for a whole range of reasons, not least because Japan looks like the rising power, and presumably one of the reasons after the Russo-Japanese War the fact that Japan looks like this newly powerful nation leads people to ask, well, what have they got in their constitution that's given them this new mojo? And they, people look to it for an example of how you can get a state off the ground in a modern sense. Yes, and particularly as the constitution is followed by success in war on Japan's part, not just against China, which had long been a more powerful, older empire, which tended to look down on Japan. And now Japan defeats it in a war. But even more crucially, in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 to 6, terribly, terribly important, certainly for the repercussions of this constitution's reputation in different parts of the world because everybody can tell their own story about this war. Russian nationalists and constitutionalists can say, look, we have been defeated by an Asian power, an East Asian power, because they have got a constitution and we have not. So we must modernize. Indian nationalists and Egyptian nationalists and Turkish nationalists can say, ah, oh, the fact that Japan can make a constitution which will last and which allows them to win wars against white people shows us the future. This is what a non-Western modernity can look like. And there's deep excitement which is cultivated by Japanese political agents and is lasting. And you, you get lots of examples of people in India naming their children after Japanese admirals and generals as an indication that 
they too want constitutionalism, modernity, a non-Western future, if you like. And what did they think this constitution had in it that turned Japan not just into a modern state, but into a successful modern war-winning state? Because it's still there's still that sort of puzzle here, which is these, I don't want to use this word in a sort of belittling sense, these are just constitutions. In a sense, these are arrangements, sets of rules to establish how polities are organised, divisions of power, who's responsible for what, they create rights, they also create roles for people to enforce those rights and so on. This Japanese constitution, it wasn't particularly democratic, although it did encourage forms of debate and discussion and so on. But when people said, well, we must have one of those if we want to win wars, what did they think it was going to give them? Well, again, I think it's a question of belief. I think you write in one of your own books that an important aspect of democracy is belief, not what actually is, but what people believe is there as well. Mm. And so with constitutions, these kind of constitutions, that yes, I mean, some people can say, oh, well, look, Japan now has a parliamentary system. And that is new, and it is important. And even though the emperor is still in Japanese political theory, pronounced as divine, in fact, he's hedged in in more formal ways than it happened before. So yes, this is not a democratic constitution at all, but it's not an insignificant constitution. But there's also that by this stage, having a written constitution like this has become for many people a token of modernity that if you want to make yourself a modern state, then this is something you've got to have. And you can see them arguing this in China before and after the Chinese revolution of 1911, saying, look, we have no chance of modernizing without getting a new political constitution of the Japanese sort. So at the end of the book, you, you effectively end at the end of the 19th century, but you take the story forward through the First World War and beyond. And of course, everyone will be aware of some 20th century constitutions which have become bywords for failure, of which probably the Weimar Constitution is the preeminent example, of a form of words which turned out to be insufficient to prevent the worst from happening in politics. But you give other examples to Stalin's constitution for the Soviet Union, which on paper looks quite good and in practice isn't. I was noticing it in Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, where she talks about the Soviet constitution as being a wonderful document for women. It's just unfortunate that in practice, the Stalinist regime turns women into breeding machines, but on paper, it looks great. Yeah. And yet you also still argue that despite these failures, there is still that lingering legacy, even after constitutions have failed, something remains. Even you suggest in the case of these constitutions, you think that story runs through the 20th century too? think so. I mean, you know, I'm not, I hope, naive. As a historian, it's very difficult to be naive because you know so many things go wrong over time or can go wrong over time. But what strikes me as remarkable and important and should not be pushed away is the fact that despite all these failures, people keep doing this. So 
what are they writing these constitutions for? At a certain level, belief is clearly operating. And this is partly the human desire for a fresh start. It's partly, as Jefferson says, that even when these things don't work, if you've got a text or the memory of a text, you can refer to it and it may give you hope and it may give you ideas. And so, yes, I do think the way that just as extreme naivety and optimism about written constitutions is wrong. So pessimism and saying, oh, well, look, they don't work. Look at this and that and the other constitution. And yet we've got authoritarian governments. So clearly constitutions don't work. And some people still make these arguments, not least in the UK. But I think this is wrong. I think we have to take these texts seriously. We have to recognize they do different things. And we have to recognize that this has been a shift in political technology, which has endured. And we have to try and understand why that is so. How this is going to be adapted to an increasingly digital age is another matter. So you mentioned the UK there, we've done quite well, we haven't mentioned the UK yet, but now I'm going to ask you a question about the British constitution. People often say we don't have a written constitution, but of course we do, it's written. I mean, it's not an oral constitution, it's written down. It's just not codified, it's not in one place. And you're mainly in this book writing about attempts to pull things together in a single document, which is what the UK doesn't have. But as you say in the book, the UK is still a very influential example for people trying to create constitutions, particularly late 18th, early 19th century. People look to Britain because Britain, a bit like Japan, when things are going well, people want to know what you've got that allows it to go well. But if you take the story through to the present, I suppose people less often look at the UK these days as an example of how to have a constitution. What do you think, and you are the author of many books, but a book called Britons that I'm sure many people will be aware of. And I think it's probably the book that's most cited history book by British politicians since it was written to this day. At a point of crisis for the UK state, do we need a different constitution? Does this history tell us something about what the UK is currently lacking? Yes, I think it does. Of course, in the 17th century, during the interregnum, the Civil War period, there were lots of experiments in written texts. The instrument of government of 1653 is a kind of proto-written constitution deliberately represented by Cromwell as a fundamental law that the legislature can't dismiss. So there is that long historical background, but even well after that, what the British understood as these written constitutions began to proliferate around the globe was that the British themselves, since they were at that stage number one, had to have their own vein of written constitutionalism. And one of the ways they did that was through the cult of constitutional history. And constitutional histories are big bestsellers in 19th century Britain, way up to the 1950s, 60s. Constitutional history is done in schools, in universities. 
And of course, this is not remotely the same as a codified constitution, but it did give people some kind of familiarity with what constitutional issues and precepts might be. But what we've had really since the 1960s is not only a continuing lack of codified constitution here, even as government has become more and more complex with devolution and more, but constitutional history has also dropped out of the school and the university curriculum. And I think that combination is pretty lethal as we are reminded by the plague that we're still, we hope, coming through and coming to the end of at the moment, how governments work and how they can be seen to work matters enormously because if you don't think about that and devote some creative thought to that, governments can kill you, either you know, deliberately or by default. So working out how all this huge plethora of paper that Westminster and the courts and judges have generated over the centuries, how we can turn that into something approaching a codified constitution, which will be more transparent, more up to date, which people can consult and try to understand. This seems to me to be really important. On today of all days, when we've been hearing quite a lot about how the British government doesn't work, it's an important question. We won't talk about Mr Cummings here, I think, unless you want to. But so in relation to that, there's always that challenge of then when do you do it? So say there's a recognised need in the British case. Devolution poses huge challenges for the UK state. There are all sorts of aspects of our constitutional life that would benefit from not just being ordered, but being thought about and thought through. And yet the idea of a constitutional convention or some kind of gathering and who would be in it and how would people be chosen for it and so on, under sort of conditions of strain seems like a luxury. You know, it doesn't feel like the pandemic has produced a thought, well, what we need is a constitution. In stark contrast, I was really struck by the example you gave and I was struck by it in the book of the Norwegians who thought we're about to be invaded. Quick, we need a constitution. <laughs> in a crisis, what we need is a constitution. That feeling doesn't seem present for us. It seems that that's the, the real challenge. It's as though we need a moment of calm and reflection in order to sort this out. But the only thing that gives us the impetus to sort it out is panic. Well, you know, there's plenty of potential for panic arguably to come. If Scotland votes to secede from the union, the Scottish nationalists have already said that they intend to introduce a written constitution for an independent Scotland. If Northern Ireland decides also to secede from the Union and rejoin the rest of Ireland, which would also necessitate a new Irish constitution, well, then one is left with England and Wales. And, you know, independence thoughts are growing in Wales. Now, I'm not saying any of this is necessarily going to happen, but if this begins to look more likely, then this may be our equivalent, together with the surviving tensions of Brexit, this might be the equivalent of a 
big war threat, a major crisis that will force the political class, which otherwise will not want to do this, but force them to say, perhaps we ought to do something. Perhaps we need a more federal structure to calm things down, given that we can't buy everyone off. And if we want a more federal structure, perhaps finally it should be put into a codified constitution. So this may not happen, but I think it is now within the bounds of possibility. If you'd like to find out more about other events and talks that are part of the Cambridge Literary Festival, it's all on their website. Just go to cambridgeliteraryfestival.com. There's lots of really interesting things coming up. And coming up on Talking Politics, we're going to be speaking to Ed Miliband. And we'll be letting you know soon about our summer plans. Helen and I will be having a series of conversations, and we very much hope they will involve questions from you. More soon. Join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.